So I called my talk that I was working on this afternoon, I called it Heart Surgery, Making More Room. I think I was inspired by all of Christiana's medical information. (laughs) So this is a reading that I've used at a lot of retreats. It's from Father Theophan, and it's about one of the great early Vipassana teachers uh, who died in the 90s, I guess. Her name was Deepama. She was a little tiny woman from Calcutta, and she was the teacher of many of my teachers. And so when he wrote about her, he said this. He was writing about her heart. He said, what is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me, even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? So that's the question, isn't it? What will they find? And will there be room in there for many, many, many beings? It's um, not really enlarging our hearts. It's not really a clinical issue or a medical issue. It's really a spiritual question and a spiritual process. So tonight we're going to continue our exploration of compassion and perhaps look in particular at the practice of forgiveness, which seems to be pretty crucial in this process, because it's come up in actually a number of my interviews. So in Pali, the word for compassion is karuna. So some of you are, in fact, living in karuna, which is a pretty nice place to be. Uh, That's the name of one of the dorms. And it means the quivering of the heart. It's that place where when the heart is really fully present with pain, our own or another's, it kind of quivers. And in classical Theravadan thinking, it has a near enemy. And the near enemy is indifference. So this isn't indifference. You know, this thing that we're practicing. Some of you have asked that question, you know, will it it mean that somehow I can just kind of in a cool way be around pain and suffering and not really be affected by it? When I was first interested in practice, I was working as a therapist in Santa Cruz and I had decided that I needed to learn how to meditate. And at the Transpersonal Psych Conference that year, that happens annually, I think it probably still does, down at Asilomar, Jack Kornfield was coming to offer a one-day workshop on how to meditate. That sounded pretty safe. I didn't have the courage to go to a Zen center or you know, on a sashin or anything like that. So that seemed really, really scary. You know those Zen folks, we have one wandering around in their big brown robes. I mean, I don't know. 
So I went to the conference and I went to the one day sit, which was wonderful, and I fell in love immediately. And then attended the conference. And um, the keynote speaker for the conference was Roger Walsh. And Roger is a very dedicated um, practitioner, has sat probably more long retreats than just about anybody else in all of history, although I didn't know that at the time. And he, early on, gave a talk and stood up in front and started to talk about the suffering of the world. And he talked about the wars and he talked about starvation and he talked about dying children. And after a while he began to cry. And he talked and he cried and he cried and he talked. And I thought, I don't know what that guy has, but I want it. I want to find a way that my heart can be as big as that. And that's really what we're talking about, is that kind of ability to be present and sometimes to cry and to feel the pain, maybe not exactly the same pain, if somebody's having physical pain, you can't quite get the same thing in your own body, but to really take it in. So all of this work that we're doing as directing us towards some new ways of thinking. And the 59 slogans that are in the uh, Lojong list that you will get copies of um, definitely challenge us to do that, just that. So here's a poem from Robert Bly. It's called Things to Think. So this is about how do we begin to change? He says, think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, maybe wounded and deranged, or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. (laughs) So that's definitely about a bigger heart and more possibilities and a lot of self-compassion. So last night, Christiane ended with the slogan, do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, and pray for help. It's one of my all-time favorites, especially the appreciate your lunacy, or my lunacy. Because a sense of humor really, really helps in this practice. It really helps. And if you sit, if you sit on the cushion for any amount of time, is your mind sane? You know? It isn't. And we begin to see how absolutely insane the mind is. And then after a while you begin to be able to do that in your everyday life. And I don't know, you know, it's so helpful to me to go every now and then, oh my God, look at what Mary Grace is doing. She's doing it again. It's the same old, same old. 
You know, can you, can you believe that she's still so stuck? So appreciating the lunacy is a really important piece. And given that we are all more than a little crazy, and we all create suffering, every one of us creates suffering, and we all suffer, how do we cope? How do we cope? We live in a world of relationships. It's filled with other people. And we actually spend relatively little time, a little of our time, most of us, on the cushion and in isolation. It's a pretty special thing to have this kind of time. And out there in that world of work and relationships, things happen. A lot of things happen. And some of them are really, really painful. So we have to include them on our path. Every one of you, every person I've talked to this week, is doing just exactly that. There's things that are coming up um, and we have to include them. And it happens in this world of relationship and involvement with other people. Norman says in his book, it is through relationship that we most fruitfully expand our horizons and train our minds to be compassionate and, and resilient. One of my most favorite Buddhist teachings is that all of these relationships, all of these beings who are around you, every one of them, are enlightened but one. And you know who the one is, right? And they are all doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up. So that sounds kind of fun, you know, we all laugh a little, but when you really put it to work, it's tough, you know. It's your partner and your child and your dog when they poop on the floor <laughs> and your mother-in-law when she's difficult or your boss or your parents or the political scene, you know, whatever it is, it's all happening to help us wake up kind of scary, actually. But we don't see that, do we? We don't see it. And so we forget about that, and we feel hurt, and we take it in, and so um, we feel others' hurts, and we hold on to them, and we hurt ourselves, and we do things to other people, and then all this hurt, we kind of hold on to it, and we kind of clutch it to our bosom and then we replay the indignation and we chastise ourselves for the things we've done over and over and over. So it really seems important to consider um, right away, you know, how do we forgive? How do we loosen our hold on these past injuries? How do we keep our hearts open to those who have hurt us and to ourselves? Henri Nouwen <clears throat> says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. Forgiveness is the name of love, 
practiced among those who love poorly, none of us is really skilled in love. And the Metta Sutta says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's pointing to the notion that all of this is a skill, learning to be kind, learning to be friendly, learning to forgive, learning to be compassionate, learning to hold all of it with compassion. This is a skill, so we have to train. We don't, you know, if we knew how to do this, we wouldn't be here, would we? If it was just automatic and easy, and we just sort of were imborned with compassion, um, we wouldn't be here. So we have a skill, we have a training to do. So forgiveness. Forgiveness is an interesting word. I had a student once who wrote me a note and said, you know, I think it's the other F word. They didn't really like the word forgiveness because it's one that has been taught a lot uh, from the perspective of what's important is you are supposed to forgive and forget. Just forgive and forget. Or even sometimes someone will just say, just forgive, just forgive them. As though it were something that you could just kind of do like that, you know? And after a while, then that begins to feel like, well, what you're supposed to do is pretend that these things haven't happened or at least forget that they happened and repress it. And that doesn't feel really great. Who wants to do that? No one wants to do that. And there's so many questions around it. You know, some people ask, well, does this mean if I, if I forgive someone, does it mean I can't protect myself from someone who might harm me? You know, that's a really good question. Or I'm still mad. I'm still really angry that that happened. What am I going to do with that? Does that mean I can't be angry? I have to pretend that that's not there? Or, of course, the big one that comes a lot, I can do okay with forgiving other people, but myself, that's really hard. Or what happens when we begin to realize we're kind of bargaining, you know? I'll forgive you if you will change. You have to change. Or the other way is, I'm waiting for you to change, and when you change and you're finally improved, your new and improved self, then I will forgive you, you know? So, and none of these, it's, it's tricky. So, again, because I always think of him when I think about forgiveness and compassion, I think about um, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, because he's such a good model. And, you know, any of you who have ever listened to him or been in his presence, you've heard him talk about my friends, the Chinese, you know, the communist Chinese who have created so much havoc and Tibet. And certainly there are many, many accounts of his followers who worry when they're in prison and they're being tortured that they will cease to have compassion. They won't, they, they worry that they won't be able to forgive. That, that's amazing, really, when you think about it. Some years ago, many years ago actually now, um, I went to Tucson to be with him um, on one of his first trips to teach there, it was his first trip to teach in Tucson. And so he didn't have a lot of Secret Service folks hanging around him because he wasn't considered to be a head of state at that point. 
So he just wandered around the hotel. It was really great, you know, the Dalai Lama and small entourage of uh, people who were attending him, but not a lot. And he kind of, you never knew where he would crop up. It was very wonderful. And I was um, waiting someplace in the hotel for something. I don't remember now what. And he came along and everybody was very excited. And there was this little woman in line, um, clearly an Asian woman, and she reached out to him and she began to sob and she said, I didn't know what they were doing. She said, I lived in China, I worked as a travel agent, I thought China was wonderful, I had no idea what was happening. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he was so incredibly kind with her. And he stopped and he talked to her, and he hugged her, and then he got his secretary to make sure she, that they had her name and her address. It was such a modeling for what can happen when the heart is open. You know, he was really doing, remember we talked about it was his job description to be the bodhisattva of compassion. And he was doing a good job that day. He really was being the bodhisattva of compassion and holding forgiveness and not shutting anyone out of his heart. Because that's what forgiveness is really about. Forgiveness is about not having to exclude anyone from our heart, including ourselves, of course. So we often do the opposite, right? We try, we shut down and we distract ourselves with all of the usual things that we can distract ourselves with, you know, the TV and our devices and computer games and, you know, the endless um, ways we have, substances and otherwise, to anesthetize the mind and the heart. And we pretend that this pain and difficulty isn't there. Sometimes we even forget things, literally forget things, that have happened to us. Now that's a great strategy. If you're a little kid and something terrible has happened to you, some kind of abuse, and you manage to shut it off someplace, that can be very helpful when you're very small because you're very small, what else are you going to do? But of course, um, what happens is that as we mature, um, we begin to realize there's a kind of a shut-off place in the psyche and that the heart isn't quite as open as we might want it to be. And it can become very important to, and a very big part of healing to remember whatever it is that happened. Some of you, I'm sure, in this room have been through that process. Although sometimes also we remember things that have happened, certainly um, when, uh, as we get older. And then what happens is um, we keep the heart shut down because we keep telling ourselves the story of what happened, you know. He, sh- he said this, and then I did that, and then he did this, and or she did that, and it, it goes on and on, and then you tell your friend the story, and then you write about it in your journal, and then you talk about it with somebody on the phone, and you keep telling the story. And um, we don't feel so vulnerable. It helps us to kind of feel a bit stronger. We form a kind of an identity around the story. And of course, each time we tell the story over and over again, it's like we inject ourselves with all the venom and the anger. You know, Nelson Mandela 
I believe it was Nelson Mandela. Sometimes it's attributed to Desmond Tutu as well. She says, not to forgive is like drinking a glass of poison and waiting for your enemies to die. So we do that. You know, we keep sticking, putting all that venom in us. And we stay caught, you know, and our blood pressure literally rises and actually a stress response is created in the body, just as Christiane described last night. And the heart rate increases. It's literally not good for us to do that. Sometimes we use the memory of what's happened to us as a weapon. You know, I'm this way because you did that to me. And, um, and then it goes on from there. The skill of forgiveness is not to forget what happened. The skill of forgiveness is to remember fully and forgive. Remember fully and to keep the heart open, to be able in some way to wish that person who hurt you well. It doesn't mean you like them. We'll get to that in a minute. Jack Cornfield used to like to say, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a happy past. So our view needs to change. Somehow we need to change how we see things. The division between self and other needs to soften. And part of what we need to do in order to do this is to see clearly in each moment. So the word vipassana, some of you may not know this, the word vipassana means to see clearly. So that's why it's been such an important part of our practice here this week, is to practice sitting moment to moment to moment with just what is. It might be your lunacy, or it might be the sound of the turkeys, or it might be your breath, or it might be the memory of some injury, whatever it is that's there, to sit with it, to see it clearly. It is like this. So as we see, as we begin to remember fully, and we see what has happened to us, it's really important to say also in response to some of those concerns that sometimes what we also see is a strong stand is needed. We need a certain kind of ferocity with our forgiveness and our compassion. It's really important not to confuse the open heart with having no boundaries at all. So you can keep someone absolutely out of your life, never have them in your living room again, and still have the ability to hold them in your heart. That's really important to remember. And you can hold them in your heart, you can wish them well, you can have compassion for their pain. And it's important also to say, as we deal with the places where we have been harmful, that we can be ferocious with ourselves. I have to create certain boundaries for my behavior so that I will never do that again to get really strong about it. And just because we have that kind of ferocity, we can, that doesn't mean you're not holding yourself with kindness and 
compassion. It's not meaning that you're not forgiving yourself. It's just that you are clear that that's what's needed. That will be part of the forgiveness, in fact. So we begin then to understand, you know, our own process. Perhaps some of that is uh, understanding our own woundedness that led to unskillful actions. So, you know, we keep being present with where we have harmed others, where we have been harmed. We begin, we keep exploring these places of pain. Many of you, I've been so touched this week. You know, it's not, not so often that we have a retreat here that seems to have gone so deeply into the heart. And I'm really moved by all of the practice and the things that I'm hearing from you. So as we do that, then we begin to understand a little bit about, oh, you know, there's, there's woundedness there. And many people who do harm are acting out of their own fear and their own delusion and the places where they have been hurt. This is a pretty well-known fact about people who are harmful. And, you know, most people who are harmful are not... Um, are often come out of some place of delusion. You know, they think that somehow what they're doing is okay. They may be tragically misguided, but they're not um, doing harm just to do harm. That's not so common, actually. So to see all of this requires an open heart. That takes a lot to be able to begin to understand the place where someone else would do harm. This is really the heart of the bodhisattva. Remember we talked about the bodhisattva who was such a great being that they could hold a whole galaxy in the palm of their hand. Another thing that I think is helpful in thinking about forgiveness is to think about it as a geography. You know, It's a geography, it's a place in the heart that we can enter. It's not something that someone can just give to us. And it's not something that we somehow have to attain. And it's interesting, in the Christian scriptures, since we've used the G word already, we might as well talk about Jesus as well. (laughs) So, you know, Jesus actually never says, I forgive you. He says, you are forgiven. Isn't that interesting? You know, you are forgiven. You just have to figure out that you're already forgiven. It's already there. Find it. Find it, find that place, find the place in the, where the forgiver and the forgiven can find, that they can find in their heart. Another thing that's very important to say is that this takes time. It isn't that instant thing that we sort of felt we had to have when we were told, oh, just forgive them. It can take months or years to train the mind and the heart to be open to someone who has harmed us. It's really true that if you even have the idea that you could do it, that is a huge step. You know, to be able to say, can't do it yet, sure would like to get there. Wow, that's amazing to be able to do that. And then after you do that, then it can take a lot of experimentation and struggle and 
two steps forward and one and seven seven eighths back and you know that gradually 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 we begin to get the heart to open up it's also maybe important to say that if we're working on forgiving others it may demand that we explore our own shadow that we it can be very helpful to explore could, the possibility that maybe I could have done the same thing. I remember, I'm just thinking of this as I'm talking tonight, I can remember when I was a young mother and, um, you know, my daughters were sometimes very aggravating. And one day I realized I really could pick her up and throw her against the wall. And I didn't do it. (laughs) So don't worry, I didn't do it. But I could feel that energy. I was that angry, you know, that, that whatever had happened. I don't even remember now what had happened. And I suddenly saw that, oh, that energy is there, which was great learning because then, of course, I knew I also had to be really careful that I didn't let myself get that angry and that I controlled my anger. So we explore that, and in doing that, we begin to understand, oh, that's where it comes from when someone else does it. And so it can be helpful to see that, and it can be helpful in the healing of um, some kind of difficult relationship. Sometimes when someone has done something that feels harmful and difficult, and there's still a lot of opposition, it's useful to consider maybe they're right. What would happen if they're right? What if this is a useful thing to have happen in the world or to me? You know, so we begin to learn. You know, there, some of you are old enough, I don't know how if enough of us are old enough in this room anymore, to remember Pogo? Remember Pogo, that little possum in the comics? And, com- and there was a great saying of Pogo's. He said, I have met the enemy and they are us. You know, so the enemy is us. You know, we are all capable of doing all of these things. In Aikido, you know, in Aikido is a wonderful martial art. And uh, part of the um, intention in Aikido is that all of the participants be moved to a safe space. So if oppositional energy is coming toward you, then the idea is to meet it and to move you and the opponent into a place of safety. I think it's a great image for how we work with difficult energies in ourselves and in others. That this is, um, it's the Aikido of the mind and the heart. And in a very real way, it begins to move us toward that place where there is no self and there is no other. There's just moving the energy, all of the energy, so that it is safe. Moving the energy so that we are all held in the heart. There we go. So if we hold on, I'm the victim and you caused it, or I caused it, and that person is the victim. That place where 
then we the whole thing stays divided, doesn't it? Then it's us versus them. It's the mode of self and other, and there's separation. When the duality lessens or drops for a moment, there's only the question of healing. You know, it's the question of moving all of us to a, a safe place. Also perhaps important to say that Sometimes healing can take, it can take place when there's no outer reconciliation. You know, it may not be possible. One person has perhaps died or disappeared. Or it may not be safe to actually have a full face-to-face reconciliation. And it can still happen. There can still be forgiveness. So this brings me back a little bit then to the next piece that I want to talk about for a few minutes, which is the slogans and using the slogans in this process of opening the heart. So these 59 slogans, you know, they are fabulous. And they are, sometimes I find just what I need to administer that kick in the pants that I, um, it would be a good idea if I had it for my practice. So you will get the list, as I said earlier, and I actually think we'll have copies of Norman's book around that you can buy if you don't already have it. What I did with the slogans is, I did this. I have this handy little thing, and in here I have all 59 slogans. I copied them out onto little cards. For a while I got kind of really ambitious and did little drawings on the back sides of the cards. Um, They don't all have little drawings. And they live in this little thing, and I often reach in and I pull one out, you know. I did not set this up, so I have no idea what I'm going to get. And it says, don't wallow. <laughs> Don't you love it? Don't wallow. It's like, oh. I thought it would be really cool if I pulled the one tonight that said, um, don't expect applause. <laughs> which is a very good one for Dharma teachers, actually. So these slogans are really helpful at sort of turning how we see things. And kind of sometimes we laugh, that's the humor piece again, and the heart opens up and we begin to see things a little differently. So I realized as I was writing this this afternoon, when I got to this part, I was going to have to read you another of my favorite poems. This is a poem by Billy Collins, and um, it's called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. (laughs) So this is a, a, a poem about turning. He says, the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently. He's probably related to the turkey, I think his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. (laughs) When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, 
his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) So next time the dog barks at your neighborhood, this is why you don't, you know, you don't have a gun in your house, none of us do, and you can just see if that works for you. So how does he do this, you know, how does, how did, let's assume Billy Collins probably wrote that poem in response to a barking dog one day. How, how do we do it? How do we change those places where we are just so averse to whatever is going on or so wanting something that isn't there or we're just sort of not seeing? How do we change that so that we are seeing clearly? How do we take something that has really terrible, a serious injury to our being and make it part of our spiritual path. But to do this, we have to be present. It keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? We have to be present. We have to stay with our woundedness. Pain is like this. Anger is like this. Hatred is like this. Resentment is like this. Not turning away because these things are your teachers. They are your teachers. This is a great opportunity when your anger or your fear or your resentment or your jealousy arises because it's telling you you're not cooked yet. You've got work to do. There's still some place where the heart is closed. Hooray, we've found another one. It doesn't feel like great news, I know that. But it's really helpful to begin to go, oh, okay, I can see. I have some work to do over here. I haven't forgiven this person. I'm really scared. I'm pissed off as all hell. That is a sign. So one slogan says, turn all mishaps into the path. I think maybe you touched on it this afternoon. And that's really letting us know that there's nothing outside the realm of practice. Isn't that great? There's nothing. There's nothing that you can say, oh, well, you know, that's not my practice. I can't deal with that. Everything is inside the realm of practice. No matter what comes up, no matter how deep the anger or the wound, that's your path. You can turn it into the path. And it's very helpful. There's a lot of little things that are difficult, right? So, you know, you didn't like lunch today? That's your path. You know, that's a place to work on that kind of aversion. You're wishing the sun would shine and it would get a little warmer? You know, then clouds and cold are your path. Can you come to some place of equanimity with them? Your mind is restless today or sleepy or contracted? Then that's your path. It's been very interesting You know, I made this shift a few years ago and left Santa Cruz where I had lived and worked for many years and the center that I had founded there. And, um, you know, things have changed. And so one of the places that's changed is two days a week I put on my little brown kind of Boy Scout type uniform and I go off to the National Park uh, where I'm a volunteer interpretive ranger. And I teach visitors. And, you know, this is my path. So how do I 
You know, are there moments, I've actually been, begun to play with this, are there moments when I can say to the group of people I'm talking to, you know, stand still and breathe the air and realize you're standing in a volcano. Because most people, you know, they're kind of rushing through like tourists do. You know, where's the volcano? Can I see it? Can I get them to stop long enough to actually be there and realize that they are there? And it's quite interesting to see if I can use even this as part of my path, which is part of my path is helping others wake up. I dance now with a hula group. It's really fun. I'm learning a lot about Hawaiian cultural and spiritual practices. And this is now very much part of my path, working with that group and with my teacher there. Or some of the last few years, you know, there I am, one more time, lying in the surgery suite, you know, aware of all the movement around me, doctors' voices, nurses' voices, the voices of other patients. That's my path. I can use that. I can turn it in so that I can be practicing compassion for myself, because sometimes I'm kind of scared. After all, one one more eye surgery isn't exactly what I wanted to do or for the other people, many of whom are suffering way, way more than I am. So we're asked, can we be curious, how can I use each thing that comes along to wake up the old injury, the place where we're stuck? I was recently with my daughter, who, and talking about this some, and she pointed out a book title that she'd come across. Uh, It's called, The Flowers and the Fertilizer, It's All God. So there's that word again. But really pointing to the notion that it's all part of this process, you know, the good stuff and the fertilizer. So when we practice in this small way, then when we get to the harder stuff, you know, the place where the partner discards us or abuses us or the boss who is cruel or the friend who betrays us, then we have a sense of, oh, okay, here's, this is the challenge course now. Can I even use this as part of my practice? There's another slogan in the same group that I also have found very helpful, and it says, drive all blames into one. So what does this mean, you know, drive all blames into one? And what it's really talking about is you can't just point your finger out there and blame everyone. It's just not a very useful process, the process of blame. So it's really, can we find some way in this difficult situation where somebody has done something where we can find a place of creativity and healing for ourselves, even if nothing else can be done about them? So there's a great old Zen story that I've always loved. Um, and I was, um, it's quite a challenging story. It's about a retreat center, you know, a monastery. And the cook made a lovely soup. He went out into the garden and he got lots of vegetables and he chopped them all up and he cooked cooked up the soup and um, brought it in to the monks to eat. And the master, the meditation master, took the bowl of soup and stuck his spoon in the soup and came up with the head of a snake in the soup. What is this, the head of a snake in the soup? And he calls in the cook. He says, what is this? And the cook says, oh, thank you. And picks up the head of the snake and pops it into his mouth and eats it. 
Now, I'm here to tell you that if my husband made me a soup <laughs> and I found the head of a snake in it, you know, I don't think he would pop the head of the snake into his mouth. And if I made him a soup, I wouldn't do that either. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun story. And that's kind of what it's pointing toward. Is there a way then that we can find a response that um, where we turn the situation a little bit? We can take responsibility, really, for our own happiness, regardless of what happens. I have a friend, another volunteer in the park, who lost his ability to walk when he was 19. I actually still don't know what happened to him. He is an interpretive ranger in a wheelchair. And he is a delight and obviously very helpful to the visitors who come who are in wheelchairs, but also um, has found a way to take this very difficult thing that happened to him, and he brought himself to Hawaii. He decided that's where he wanted to live, and he's creating a life that is a good and a full life. And he's able to talk about it in that way. Or I thought also as I was writing this of a time some years ago when Russell and I were traveling, and, um, you know, we had one of those awful airport days. We got there, we were flying all the way to the East Coast, and all the flights were canceled. There had been some huge number of thunderstorms somewhere in the middle of the country someplace. So all, this, all the flights were canceled. The, lights, the lines, of course, were enormous at all of the ticket agents' gates. And everybody was angry. Everybody was angry. And people were yelling at the poor agents and, you know, it just went on and on. So we took us four hours to stand in line and get up to the point where we could try to deal with what was happening to us. And just before we got there, he, Russell kind of looked around and he said, just a minute, I'll be back. And he went off and pretty soon he came back. And by the time we got, he came back just about as we got up to the agent. And he had brought with him about a half a dozen warm Toll House cookies that he'd found somewhere else. And he offered them to the agents, right? He said, here, you know, you guys, I think you need this. Well, they did. And of course, it turned the whole thing, right? He didn't need to blame them. He didn't need to put the blame onto those people. And he turned it. And then one of the last ones, be grateful to everyone. Every being is your teacher, remember? And the snakehead that you just ate is your teacher. The difficult situation is your teacher. David Steindl-Rast says, everything is a gift. The degree to which we are awake to this truth is a measure of our gratefulness, and gratefulness is a measure of our aliveness. So that place where we can begin to look, where is there something in this that I can hold with gratitude? You know, and it might be, I'm really grateful to see where I have work to do. Even our confusion, you know, our confusion can be another signal that there's work to do. And it's also something just to sit with. It's just confusion arising. And there is, in fact, a slogan that says, see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. It's not your confusion. You know, it may feel like it, you may want to own it, you may think you own it, but it's not. It's a conditioned event arising 
in your mind, in your heart. And you can say, oh my God, I'm confused, I'm lost. Or you can go, oh, huh, this is interesting. Here's confusion. Wonder what confusion is like. Here's lostness. I wonder what lostness is like. As soon as we don't identify with it, that begins to create some more space, doesn't it? And then some gratitude can come in. We can be grateful for the confusion. These slogans are so fabulous. I hope you will enjoy them as much as I have. I thought I would just run through a few others. Not, I'm not going to talk about them very much. That advise us on, you know, how to continue our life in the world. You know, it says maintain your joy and don't lose your sense of humor. So there's your lunacy again. Don't talk about faults. Turn someone else's faults into your path. Abandon hope. You know, hope's tricky. Hope creates stories, doesn't it? And remember Jack's thing about letting go of the happy past? You know, all hope of a happy past. So let go of hope. You know, just be with whatever happens. Don't be so predictable. You know, maybe there will be a bear at the door. You know, maybe you can be the bear at the door. Be truly present. You know, because when we're truly present moment to moment, we don't know how we're going to unfold. You don't. It's one of the things I love about airports. Nobody, I go into an airport, nobody knows me. Nobody expects me to be a Dharma teacher. Nobody expects me to be well behaved. You know, I can do, I can be any way I want. I could be different. I could be unpredictable. Then something new can unfold. Don't rejoice in others' pain. Oh, yeah. Don't rejoice in others' pain. So, forgiveness is the practice of love. It's a very important practice. It's part of compassion. It's part, and compassion and forgiveness are for those of us who love poorly. We can train in them. We're all participants in this grand experiment of life on this little planet of ours. Our particular life form, humanity, kind of oozes along. You know, one new being pops out of an older one, and then after a while the really older ones drop off. (laughs) Who owns what? Have you ever thought? I mean, it's really interesting. We're just kind of, you know, and then there's another one, and then there's another one, and then there's another one. Back here, the, you know, the old ones are gone. Who owns what? What wakes up? What wakes up? Do you own awakening? Does anyone own awakening? How can we possibly even begin to think that we are separate when we think about it that way? How can we possibly begin to think that someone has to be other and wrong and I can't ever forgive them? Or I can't ever forgive myself. You know. So we come back, I think, in the end, oh, and I think actually this is where Christiane came back last night too. We come back to those four thoughts. You know, as we think about forgiving others and forgiving ourselves and holding it all with compassion. This person, this person that we need to forgive is another precious being. It's a precious being. This person is very fragile and will die if they haven't already. This person has to live with the reverberation of their own actions echoing in their mind and heart. 
This helps me a lot, actually, when I think about people who have harmed me or who are doing harm in the world. I have to live with the reverberations of my actions. And also notice that when I don't forgive myself, it creates some pretty unpleasant reverberations in my heart. And there is nothing new or unusual or wrong about having to face up to suffering and pain. It's inherent in the human condition. So our task is to wake up. Our task is to move toward healing. Our task is to open the heart and to enlarge the heart, to do surgery on our heart, if you will, so that the heart can be as wide as the world. So I thought I'd end with a poem from Alice Walker. Looking down into my father's dead face for the last time, my mother said without tears, without smiles, without regrets, but with civility. Good night, Willie Lee. I'll see you in the morning. And it was then that I knew that the healing of all our wounds is forgiveness that permits a promise of our return in the end. So let's just sit together and breathe for a minute. Just stay where you are, no adjustment needed. I'm not entirely sure that all of that made sense. But pick out any pieces of it that seem to be helpful, please, and use them for your practice and let the rest of it go. Thank you very much for listening. And don't... Don't wait for me to get unpacked here. Feel free to go ahead and leave. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.